Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. In an earlier podcast episode, we talked with Bio Akamalafe, the philosopher, writer, activist, and all-round deep thinker. And towards the end of this great conversation, we asked a question about home, namely, what is home? Why is home? And what are some of the dangers or virtues of thinking about what home might be? I'd recommend that if you haven't already listened to that episode that you maybe check that one out first as a context for this conversation. A few weeks after the release of the bio episode, we received an email from a man named Claudio, who runs the YouTube channel Consciousness Now, described by him as a modern day meditator's perspective of life in the universe. On the channel, there was a half hour video, a half hour meditation on this question from the bio episode, what is home? We found this really, really inspiring because it showed that the, the conversation was there to be had and the conversation was, was inspiring people to articulate their own experiences and their own thoughts on this question. So we decided to get both of them together to sit down with us for a, another conversation on this theme of home. We can be born into a home, we can leave home, we can run away from home, we can get kicked out of a home. But I just thought to start, we would go right back to the beginning of what Bio and Claudio, your first conceptions of home were, you know, as a, as a child, that first idea of what home was, and then maybe compare that to your, your conception of home now, your day-to-day conception of home, and we can see how those differ. Um, so I don't know if uh, either Bio or Claudio wants to jump in to start us off. Bio? Please go, brother. (laughs) Okay. Well, the home that I thought I was born into was just downloaded stuff, of course. So, you know, I just happened to be born uh, in a certain country in Africa and enduring certain uh, epochs. Uh, with certain political things happening, and that was home. If I had been born in another part of the planet, a different uh, bunch of software or program would have been downloaded upon me, and I would have thought that, you know, I'm Argentinian or I'm Palestinian, or it just depends on where you're born, and you consider that home, and you view that home from the software that you're and the knowledge and information that you downloaded not in an evil way of course but it's just just the way it is so you know if i'm born in italy i think i'm italian and i think that's home and if i'm born in uh, in india i think that's home and i think like the other people around me because they have the same programming so it took some time and a few decades on the planet to try and flesh out my own realization of what home was. And um, I consider myself so fortunate 
to be living in a in a time where we have the Hubble and now we've got the James Webb telescope that shows me pictures of what home is, the actual real estate of what home is. I was hoping that, I like the idea of first principles thinking where you take everything down to zero and start from scratch. So taking things down to zero and, and dealing with principles, could we do that, I wonder, in a, to look at the planet in a fresh way? So if I go back down to zero principles, I know from an absolute fact, irrespective of what anybody's trying to tell me, the Queen, Putin, Boris, Joe Biden, I know from a fact from photographs of what my feet are standing upon. They're standing upon a planet, it's revolving in the solar system, it's in the Milky Way, and there's countless other universes out there. That's irrefutable. Nobody can take that away from me. And it's up to me to claim that as my rightful home or not. So obviously, it's much, much bigger piece of real estate than nationalistic boundaries, uh, countries, tribes, and everything. It's We used to think that way because that was the only size of the photograph we had back then, some scribbled map on a piece of paper delineating Scotland from Wales and England from Europe and this, that, and the other. But now we have actual photos of the size of what home is. Now, I don't think this is poetic talk. This is just simple, factual talk. My, when I say mine, I mean yours, our inheritance is literally a cosmic one. And I've got like maybe, if I'm lucky, 80 years to enjoy it and share it with everybody else that owns uh, temporarily the same size of real estate. It's so much bigger than all these Mickey Mouse, like there's no other word for them, politicians going around throwing little instruments around that go boom, killing people. It's amazing we're talking today, you know, on a day that, you know, everybody's just going nuts and it's just like over primitive tribal ways of thinking. So, is it possible for a human being to wake up and start thinking, let's not go for the cosmic, at least just global. What is it that's stopping us from seeing each other as one seamless unified family? Why, uh, how, what's it going to take to rearrange my thinking. I don't want to hit, like, unfortunately, I'm almost 70. It's very late to come upon this realization. I want the youth to, to get onto this by the time they're seven or eight. They should be hearing this at school. This is fundamental, basic of, this is the home you're born on. This is what you've inherited by some cosmic lottery, winning the cosmic lottery, this whole beautiful blue planet. How... Can we all get along, see each other as a whole, 
address whatever problems humanity has. They're not actually that big. You know, enough food, enough shelter, enough water. These are not big problems to solve. Incredibly cheap in comparison to let's start pressing buttons and exploding missiles. Feeding everybody is a cheap, cheap thing to do. So that's sort of my basic, uh, what I'd like to put on the table and, you know. Oh, I just would like to add that this way of thinking is not just foreign, it's impossible for a politician because it goes, it instantly puts them out of business. The career politicians need uh, other countries to fight, other tribes to be separate from other. That's their raison d'etre is to tell them that, oh, look, those guys are coming from over the river and they're going to attack us. And so I don't think this kind of thinking is possible in houses of parliaments or in Washington, D.C. or in the Kremlin. They're not capable. And this is not a put down. It's not that they're stupid, but that's not the way their software operates. You know, so uh, old school boys and girls, there's no point even talking to them. We have to, I, I think the future lies in the people that can see things completely outside of that box. So my question is, what's, what's the new way of thinking going to look like? How can it be introduced via the internet? We're so lucky. We can spread the message very, very quickly now. And what is that message going to be? So, thank you. I, well, thank you for having me. Um, and I want to say that I, um, I celebrate my big brother Claudio's um, presence and his remarks here. We, we need this. Um, and I celebrated because I know of the orientation that is premised or informed by the idea that the purpose of our conversation right now is to arrive at some essential truth behind our conversation. Or I think that would be a waste of our time if, if we're here to find out some consensus or to arrive at a consensus, I, I think that, I think we're here to celebrate differences, to sniff out nuance and complexity, and to see what might want to happen as a result. So I also share your impatient urgency um, with the nation state global order arrangement. I definitely do think as well that we need different kinds of thinking, new kinds of thinking. And the, the corollary of what you said, the implications are that we're stuck in this dynamic of seeing ourselves through the prisons of nationalistic borders and territories. And these could get in the way of some other forms of configuration, other forms of homemaking to come. When I think of home, I think of 
place-making practices, right? Place-making practices that are um, polyamentary, uh, ecological, theological, microbial, um, socio-material. I think of all the ways that things come together to provide stability, if only for a moment. For instance, I think about uh, the epoch that we call the Holocene, right? The Holocene is the geological um, um, space time period, which some geologists are arguing we're, we've exceeded that at this point in time. We should be calling this the Anthropocene, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the Holocene is the retreating of the Ice Age, right? It's the it's the sudden emergence of vast tracts of farmland. It's the conditions for the emergence of the nation state. It's not just geological, it is also microbial. It means that the way we eat food and the ways we interact with each other and relate to the world outside of us and relate to ourselves is part of this enterprise that we call home. The so home is never a simplistic fait accompli. It is the applause of the multiple. It is the coming together of the multiple, which suggests that it is fragile and that it could come apart. But this coming apart is some, sometimes a coming together again. And, you know, I hear Claudio in his quest for the permanent, the, the essential, um, the, the more than appearance or the more than phenomenal, you know, this is what some philosophers have called the noumenal, right? What lies beyond this messy terrain of appearances? And I really find myself taken by that because, um, not because it's familiar, but because I, I sense what it wants to do. Again, I, I'm not going to say, hey, this is true or this is false. That's boring, excessively boring to me. What I want to find out is ask questions like, or what I want to do is ask questions like, what is this thinking doing? What is it likely to do, right? How does this speculate? How does it move creaturely in a world of competing alternatives, right? That's what I would rather do and see points of convergence with Claudio and points of divergence, right? I think, you know, this, you know, the, the idea of the, the noumenal, the idea of the essential isn't particularly new. Um, you know, at some point, Claudio speaks about, let's just boil everything down and start from scratch. And I remember what well, I said to myself in my head that the father of mathematics did that, Rainer <laughs> uh, Descartes, right? He tried that. He was like, going to forget everything, wipe away everything, clean the slate, and then we can start from scratch. Let's start from first principles. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Right? I remember struggling with this idea. Well, not by struggling. I ate it completely as an undergrad because it felt right. But the consequences of cogito ergo sum was the colonization of my people. The idea that knowledge or home is universal, 
and permanent and static um, is imbricated and entangled with the technologies, theological, conceptual, uh, physical, and otherwise that led to the colonization of and the transfer of millions of black bodies across the Atlantic. That universalizing principle, that idea that would ennoble or empower um, a stranger to come into a different continent altogether and say, this is not real. This is not home. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to take you into my economy, rename you, and make you readier for home. It led to the dismissal, the extraction, and the disappearing of other cultural forms of making home. So as much as I'm given to the idea of a platonic realm of forms, so you might, of course, know, I'm sure, Tom, you're quite uh, aware of this binary that Plato, Plato Socrates, you know, submitted with his idea of forms, right? That everything we see around us is just an appearing. It's just a fragile, shadowy representation of the real. The real is behind our senses. It only takes a certain disciplinary approach for philosopher kings in the city to be born to notice the real, where home really is, the actual, right? Um, but there are problems with this approach, and I've just mentioned some of them. It's the colonial, it's the imperial, it's the universal. Um, so I wanna, I wanna submit this speculatively with great humility that I don't know what home looks like. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that an image could capture what home is in its staticity, right? There's something ecstatic about home and it's taste that, that feels familiar in my mouth, right? When I think of home, I think of the Atlantic Ocean. I think of mourning. And I think of suffering. But I also think of joy. I think of meals. I think of cradling ourselves in very fragile heaps of intimacy, you know, in the dark sometimes. The home that I imagine does not look like arrival. It does not look like completion or wholeness. It looks like difference making. It looks like migrancy. It looks like moving across the world because your home is blown up in pieces. It looks like my experiences of traveling through gutters in the Democratic Republic of Congo because soldiers have just infiltrated our home and destroyed it, threatening to kill our entire family. And I understand how this positions me and postures me to lean into the world in a different way that might be potentially complementary to what Claudia was saying and also diverging from that. So my effort here is not to refute that position, not to cancel away the essentialist idea, because I think we need that as well. But I want to notice that what it has tended to do and to produce is an essentializing 
binarizing dualistic notion that summarily disturbs or postpones differences. That says, in some very capitalist jaw-stroking notion, that we are all one. I've heard that before many times. It has come from Nike and Coca-Cola most of the time. <laughs> that we are all one, right? Forget, or some, from people that say, for instance, I don't see color. I don't see color, right? Well, you obviously see color. <laughs> um, the, the color. Uh, the, the refusal of, for instance, racial difference is often... Uh, submitted as a response or as a hoped-for measure to counterbalance racialization. But I don't feel that the denial of difference or the idea that the world is constantly churning in its difference-making activity or practices, I don't feel that dismissing difference is, um, is moving us closer. I feel embracing difference means that we enjoy the complexity of non-arrival. That it means that I can look at the earth from outer space and also shake my head. That the cosmic is no less, uh, is, is no less um, important or no more significant or no more superior than the microbial. That when I meet Tom in London someday for a cup of tea, that intimate moment in his house, with maybe a burger or two, would be just as cosmic as a star exploding or as a platonic arrival somewhere. Let me stop there for now. Yeah, Bio, I think that's really beautiful. And I'm sure Claudia will want to jump in, but I think that brings up one of the issues that I've kind of been wrestling with of how to treat ourselves both as kind of cosmic children and, you know, each human is a skin cell on the body of the planet kind of thinking, but then also not dismissing the beautiful tapestries and different understandings and histories of different cultures in the, and I use this with, with the, the weight of what the word means, but the whitewashing of a universal, you know, and I, the, I like to think of it in terms of a kaleidoscope, you know, that we move through these different, different lenses to try and understand things, but it's a real challenge. And yeah, I don't know if, um, anyone has any advice for someone who's having trouble with their kaleidoscope? Yeah. yeah, I was in no way suggesting, in no way at all, that uh, that we're all part of the whole makes us the same. Yeah. No, in, in fact, uh, I think that once you realize you're all part of the whole, you have freedom to be yourself, to speak your own language, to enjoy your own culture. I'm not the same as an ant or a giraffe or a guy from Nicaragua. I'm different. We, I enjoy the different food. And Okay, so what I'm suggesting, though, is that there isn't the freedom. There, there are no actual freedoms on the planet with the systems that are happening right now. I'm not free to be myself. If I'm, well, Brother Bio is, is just a, such a beautiful example. Here's this dude, he's born in West Africa. All of a sudden, he can float around the planet and incredibly, magically, cosmically end up in Chennai for who knows how long. It's just the roll of the dice. Maybe tomorrow he's going to be, we'll be Zooming and he's going to be in Iceland. I don't know. Now that's freedom. And 
And he's not, he's not in Chennai as something other. Uh, well, I don't want to put words in your, in your mouth, Bio, but I see the beautiful passion that you have representing the geography, the history, and the culture that you were born in. You're not pretending to be Indian in, uh, in Tamil Nadu. You're, you're a, you are this living embodiment of the place that you were born. You, you're made of those molecules and all of those uh, elements of the place you were born, and you're expressing that. What you have had is this incredible gift of being able to move. Now, countless billions of people don't have that gift. It's just like you're, you're born almost like a king with regards to benefits and the right kind of passport and the right kind of education. You worked hard for it, of course, but you were just blessed to be born under with those circumstances. And you, out of countless other of your countrymen, have the freedom to do that. I would challenge most of your countrymen to try to cross even one of any of those borders that surround uh, that country. And you're stopped by some Rambo dude telling you you don't have the right kind of permit and you didn't apply for the right kind of visa and you're some kind of foreign alien, blah, blah, blah. All over the planet, it's exactly the same thing. Now, so what I'm saying is, um, I just want to be super clear about it. Like, I totally celebrate everybody's difference. I just want everybody, I would like to see everybody have their natural born uh, global freedom. That's all. Like, if I'm born in Nicaragua and I want to walk through Mexico and land in the United States, I don't want anybody to tell me anything, not even the slightest suggestion that I'm some kind of alien, that I'm doing something illegal, that all of that stuff. Like, my question is, why, what is it going to take to wake up on a planet that isn't made up of different prison cells? I, I, I'm not interested in repainting that that prison cell pink from pink to blue from blue to I'm, I'm not I don't want to refurnish the prison cell. I want to tear down its walls. I want anybody to have the same privilege of freedom and mobility uh, on this planet as I have and. Uh, I've been blessed because I've been born in the right place, the right time, the right skin color, all of that. I totally understand what you're talking about with regards to colonialism and all of, all of that. I'm saying I'm talking about the reverse of all of that. There's no need to colonize anybody if it's all my colony. And if everybody else feels like it's their colony, like I want the guy living in Iceland to feel Icelandic, but global. And if he wants to move down to Zambia tomorrow, that he's going to be an, an Icelandic dude living in Zambia with no problem, but nobody looking at him sideways and vice versa, of course. So can the youth of today grow up without facing the problems that we're facing this morning with, you know, the Ukraine and Russia and all these super ultra Mickey Mouse primitive ways of thinking. Can we not just 
grow up and uh, step into a global planet, celebrating our own differences. I hear you, brother. I hear you. Um, yeah, uh, you must have seen me shake my head many times because, yes, that sense of an anarchist longing to break through the prison cells, as you call it, of the global nation state order is deeply embedded in my politics and in my work. I do want that too. I understand what you say about that. Um, but there is room for a, some caution. And, and this is what I sense here. You, you know, it's also funny when you said the Mickey Mouse primitive. <laughs> and I was thinking Mickey Mouse is anything but primitive. Disney is probably the most global entity at this point in time in its reach, in its understanding of skill and its understanding of entertainment. Um, if there's any Kafkaesque uh, utopian um, future, I'm pretty sure it will have Mickey Mouse's logo as the, as, <laughs> as, as the, as the one and for all time um, representation of superiority and arrival and globality. <laughs> so there's some irony there, but, but you know, I, I, I really deeply appreciate your longing and your taking in what I say about differences. There does seem to be um, a secondary allocation of difference in the way I hear you. Um, the way that I hold difference is not, um, it's not skin wise, not merely that. Difference to me is deeply primary, right? You know how we think of Sam is different from Bio, or Sam is different from Tom. That's a secondary skill. Um, uh, articulation about differences. But to say that bio is different from bio is to do something entirely different. Was it Heraclitus that said, no man steps into the same river twice, right? And then his student, I forget his name, was it Clatipus? I actually started his he says, well, no man steps into the same river once. Right? So that's a, a different notion of difference altogether, right? That even our identities are not singular, that we are constantly flowing in a stream of, of difference making. Perhaps this is what I, I'm leading to, or what I want to say, that what if mobility is not as important to some people as it is to you? What if the advantages that you allocate to being able to traverse boundaries is only secondary and entirely minimal to people that are stationary or seem to do well within their locality. Can we allow for the messiness of different formulations of home that may not subscribe to our notions of fact or truth or a final ideal? If utopia is formally arranged and we dismantle every form of national boundary um, that we know today, is there a sense in which this utopian formulation could be a reinscription or a continuation 
of the incarceration we witness today only on a larger scale? So my questions are invited here or articulated here not to dismiss or to disparage or to invite a sense of complexity with how we formulate home or even mobility or utopian longings for a different arrangement where everything is fine, where I can travel and be Icelandic in uh, New York or be Caribbean in Africa or in India. I came to India because I fell in love with an Indian, right? Um, and I live in India right now. I still get many stares. I don't know if you witnessed this in, uh, in Chennai, Claudio, but walking down the street is, uh, is a story in curiosity, <laughs> at least for those that see me. Everyone always looking. I sometimes want to blurt out, never seen a black guy before or something like that. <laughs> right? But it's, it's always like, what is this creature in front of us? I don't boil it down to some racism, right? I don't, I don't do traffic in that kind of um, politics that pixelates racism to an individual. I think that the world is more complex than that. But it is important to note that um, the world is not singular, that there is no, there is no umbrella term or umbrella concept called everything or home once and for all that could fully cover or approximate or move close to the way that our bodies are moving. Uh, maybe uh, this, this, this would be very important to say that I don't distinguish between us and culture, right? There is a sense in which we often think, like you may have said at the beginning of this conversation, that I was born in Nigerian and I got programmed to be Nigerian and stuff like that, that already seemingly presupposes that I pre-exist the relationships that I enter into. That there is a self, call it a soul or something, that stands outside of the messy entanglements that I would later on be implicated in or be complicated by. But I, I see bodies as their movements. Sam wake, woke up this morning, I'm predicting Sam, I'm just playing here. Sam woke up this morning and went to the grocery and went to his grandmother and went to the PlayStation, uh, I'm just kidding. But you composed an ethnography of movement. One way to think about this is that Sam predates his movements in the world. But I think as much as we're invited to think about the world that way, that is a troubling disclosure. That is a troubling separation or dissociation of selfhood from the relationships that condition selfhood. I think that I am my relationships, that I do not pre-exist or predate my relationships. I am the relationship that I'm forming. I am culture in its ongoingness. And as much as I hate this paradigm of nation statehood, I am conditioned by it. I am nation statehood. I am imagining and desiring as this global state order is inviting me to. If I were to tell ask any one of us here, what does 2050 look like? In spite of the fact that you might be sophisticated philosophers in your own right, most of us here, if not all of us, would think along the lines of computational capitalism. We might think along the lines of iPad 3 or iPad 4 
or flying cars and stuff. That's because even the ways we think, cognition, imagination, desire, they're not separate from the worlds that we occupy. So this, this is, again, not a dismissal of essentialism. I have been used to that world that I have prayed and died and swam and eaten in that world. And I'm still quite entangled with that notion of essentialism. But I also notice that it's troubling. What I'm submitting here in, term of a, in terms of a relational paradigm is not, it's not superior to essentialism. It's not superior to Plato's Socrates. It's another formulation with shadows and troubles of its own. I'm just saying that I feel politically devoted to this because I've been shaped by the troubles of universalism. I've been shaped by the idea that the self is going, marching home to heaven, and by and by we would arrive. Heaven is very troubling to me. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I think that's so interesting. And it kind of, I think in your writing, you talked about that no place is untainted by the, the dust or the kind of messy incompleteness of the world. And I think hearing you talk, it makes me feel that us humans as well, it's almost as if, if only we could see the different dust of where we've been and the experiences we've had that kind of we travel, we're like a moving entity shrouded with different colored dusts or walking around. And I think it is, it's interesting linking that to Claudio's, you know, dream of the, the, the borderless planet in which we can, can and should be able to walk over. And uh, Claudio, it'd be really interesting to your thoughts in relation to what Bio has said. Yeah. The no borders uh, is a, um, It's not because there are no borders. That means I think everybody should move around. I totally agree with bio. It's like these people, these people in Canada, I know people, I have friends, they've never been outside almost their neighborhood. And they can, they can get that, that golden passport by just applying for it in the mail and go and travel the planet. They have no interest in it. They're super happy with their little quarter acre or maybe their little apartment in downtown. Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto. So everybody should uh, express themselves exactly the, the way they want. If you want to be a farmer all your life and never leave your acreage, that's fine. If you want to be a nonstop obsessive world traveler, that's fine. So what's what I'm sort of um, suggesting is that if if I do want to step out, I want to step out into my own home. It's not that not a home that I own. It's not that like I'm going out there to rule it or something. It's not that. I want to feel at ease. It's like if you're a if you're a, um, a wildebeest or a gazelle or a lion or whatever in the Serengeti, you're at ease. You could end up being somebody's supper. I get that. But you're, you're moving in and out of completely different beings as yourself. A giraffe is a different being from a rhino, et cetera, et cetera. And there's thousands of them and they flow in and out of each other's the same real estate without needing to show papers and passports and stuff. That same normal, effortless, natural, inherited freedom, I don't see it in human beings. 
Like if I just want to walk from the Serengeti of uh, San Francisco and across the, the, all the way to the other side of the Serengeti to New York City, I should be able to do that pretty freely, uh, not to mention go uh, uh, across any, any piece of real estate. Now, it's not that I should be traveling. It's not that at all. It's like it, it completely changes the way I think of Back, let's back to this home thing. All right. Home is this much bigger piece of real estate that my birth certificate or my passport is telling me. You know, it's, you know, I mean, we, us, um, you know, seven people, we're so blessed to have these. Uh, privileged talks, but these people that are born, raised, and died in refugee camps, they don't want to hear any of this philosophical bullshit. This is all just blah, blah crap to them. They just want to go and step onto the other side of that barbed wire fence. And all I'm saying is, what is it inside of us, the way we're programmed Mm-hmm. That makes us say, yeah, you know what? That fence needs to be there because that person was wrong, was born on the wrong side of it, and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just think of this as perhaps it's overly, you know, primary principles are hard to grasp because they're overly simplistic. And I can throw philosophical ideas upon them, but it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the truth of it. I can go to Google Earth and zoom out and I see no borders. I zoom in and what I'm zooming into is other people's constructs. Uh, Nations, by the way, are a new invention, you know, like there were empires that came and went, but separate borders that happened within my lifetime in Africa, my lifetime. I was telling you guys, I think before, I'll just share it with Bio very briefly because it was incredibly surrealistic. Uh, The newspaper in Nairobi was the East African Standard. There was a photo on the cover of some Maasai herdsmen that were born and raised on basically the Serengeti Plains. And they had spent generations and generations moving with the migration of the animals. You move where the water is. The animals figured it out. The human beings figured it out. There was no problem. The photo was these dudes, these three or four Maasai dudes, being stopped in the middle of the Serengeti Plains by dudes doing their jobs in their military uniforms, telling them they couldn't go over there anymore because there was this new thing called Kenya and this other thing called Tanzania, and there's this border there. And the Maasai dudes were saying they could look around in every direction. There's no walls. no. And they're saying, what are you talking about? And that's what I'm talking about. What borders are we talking about? Right. They weren't It's not like they weren't here. They never existed. What is it? What's it going to take for a human being to wake up and see the expanse, the never ending expanse? of the Serengeti Plain all around. The Serengeti Plain doesn't begin and end in Kenya or Tanzania or 
it's global. The Serengeti plain is a global plain. The prairies in Canada are global. So um, what are the benefits to that? The benefits are simple. Now I can move my cattle if I want to and bring them to water without some guy in a Nazi uniform telling me that's not allowed. You know, it's amazing that in the United States, the actual word for somebody that doesn't have the right passport is foreign alien. It's not like foreign human being. They don't even, the, the wording itself is telling you that you're an alien to the planet. And you've got that all over the place, everywhere. So my, my thing is a nation by definition is an apartheid. And having grown up and born and raised next door to apartheids, I'm done with them. And I, I have no more time for philosophy. I want, I want to see these people in refugee camps out of there tomorrow, you know. And all these, again, Mickey Mouse, little guys, little primitive dudes like the Putins and the Boris Johnsons and, you know, uh, I'm just outraged about the, you know, we've got to start dropping bombs. I want them gone tomorrow. Tomorrow, like, like I, I don't have time. I don't. I'm not even going to wait for tomorrow. Like inside yesterday. Yes, I'm claiming my global real estate instantly, and I know by talking to other people how different that makes me. I'm so thankful. That I don't feel that I don't. I know I've got Italian DNA in me. I, I get it. My, you know, blah, blah, blah. I get it and I celebrate it. But I'm not only an Italian. I'm not only a, yes. somebody with a Canadian passport. I'm yes. not, and I'm not just global because I have photos of it. I am a cosmic entity. The totality of it is mine. And anybody that's going to deny me one square centimeter of that, I have no time for them anymore because I'm on my way out. I'm 70. I'm done. But I have no more time for kings and queens and presidents and Putin. It's like I'm done. So I don't know if I necessarily want to defend philosophy uh, right now, but, but I do actually want to circle back to something Claudio said earlier on the importance of education. And I think it is, it is related. Uh, you know, I, to a degree, one of the, one of the big inspirations for this podcast was the work of Buckminster Fuller, the American sort of futurist of the '60s, and his very inspiring vision to make the world work for 100% of humanity. But as a you know, as someone steeped in the real politique of of international relations, you know, there is this autonomous logic of security, uh, of politics, of a narrow reality, however we might frame it. So I'd be curious to ask. Bio, I mean, you, you know, what does education look like in a global nomadic world? And something which has also come through in some of Sam's questions in the conversation, how does education bring us home or, or, or perhaps to put it more, more fundamentally make us human? And what, what is the human in this context of messy entanglements, whether that's the metaverse or mutually assured distraction, uh, dis destruction or distraction um, or climate breakdown. Um, 
sort of to riff a bit on uh, a guest we've had on before, Zach Stein. Um, there's no view from nowhere. We're all earth dwellers. We all have to grapple with, as he says, the unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe. So how do we begin along that path? Who are the educators of this new paradigm? Hmm. Mind me of that question. I'm about to go down a rabbit hole. Um, and as and as is usually the case, I get lost in the in the trance of it. Um, but I just want to say again, you know, I'm 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 dancing between two poles here. It, and I'm wondering what conversation are we having? Because I I I really share Claudio, your post-nationalist sentiments. I, I just did an, an entire course on post-nationalism for a thousand people from around the world who are finding that, yes, I am not just Italian, I'm Italian plus, right? I'm not just Nigerian, I'm Nigerian and then some, right? So a nation-state order is a co-production of identity that is limited, right? And we always spill away from these containers. My question here is, is really, or my, what I'm finding drawn to is to notice the thinking with which you think, right? The, the thinking that makes your thinking possible. And to actually, like I've said so many times, never to dismiss that, but to kind of hold it in a way so that we see it in, and hold its structure. You said, for instance, you know, this is simple and obvious first principle. I don't want to put any philosophy into it, but just the idea of a first principle is deep and complex philosophy. That's huge complex, uh, complexity in itself, right? You've already brought in philosophy by stating that this is obvious. And then we can now ask questions that how is it obvious? Who is it obvious to? Tom just said something about seeing from nowhere, that there's no seeing from nowhere. Why is that obvious to you and it's not obvious to me, right? So this is not about the content of what you're saying, brother. It's about the algorithm that makes what you're saying sayable, right? I'm asking, how is this possible? How is this obvious to you? This idea of home, this idea of um, border, uh, a borderless realm where we can speak about our freedoms. Where does this idea of the of freedom even come from, right? <laughs> the, the human traversing boundaries and, and moving here and there and being able to do what they want. From my own cultural perspective, that freedom is already colonial. The idea of being able to move anywhere where we want we have a sense of freedom that means we're indebted to things that exceed us, right? That we are, we, we need to pay attention to our conditions. So there, even the notion of freedom is liberal, it's humanist, it's traditional, it comes from a long line of globalizing education that has sought to put kids around the world in this idea that you're only free if you can do this, if you have these advantages for yourself, this is freedom. And what that did was to coax out of our cultural, um, uh, you know, contexts, a sense of entanglement with mountain, a sense 
that my identity is not mine alone. It belongs to the village. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying the structure that supports the content that you're offering is deeply troubling, you know, for the worlds that I also aspire, which is ironic because we seem to aspire for the same kind of post-nationalist imaginaries, right, that go beyond this Putin and Ukraine scenario, kings and queens. Yes, I would love for all that to vanish if I had the genie's lamp. <laughs> but, you know, that comes with a price. And I want to examine the lamp and what, what it's doing, what it's doing, what does rubbing it mean and what it's evoking, what is conjuring. So I'm saying that the way we think about this crisis is also part of the crisis. That to lean into a sense of freedom that is epistemologically dependent on a colonial framework that is in itself dependent on the idea that the self uh, and nature is obvious and everything else is just some appendage to it is already colonial thinking. And we're likely to end up in this same trouble if we go along those trajectories. In fact, we are in those troubling situations right now because we imagine for ourselves freedoms. The British people came with freedom for us. They came, they brought freedom, Claudio. They came to us. They said, you're not free. Let's give you freedom, right? Let's teach you how to be free. And this answers Tom, Tom's question about education. We were told your grandmothers, your grandfathers, your legacies, your histories, all of that is rubbish. If you're not literate, you're not free. If you don't know how to write, then you're not free. They called it global education. So if you get this, you can get a job, you can go in the market, you can be anything you want to be, you can fly in the world, everything that Hallmark and CNN promises us when we watch them, <laughs> right? And, and, and that is how the human, the incarcerated being is reproduced. This notion that you can be free. Why do we continue to reproduce borders? Because we are not free. We are indebted to microbes. We are swimming in waters that are way over our heads. We're not going to finish this or figure this out. None of us is woke enough, you know, to understand or to even come to terms with the texture of our immersion in a world that exceeds us. We are not free. Our freedom is a colonial assemblage in its own right. So, <laughs> Tom, you know, about education, and, and I don't can't remember what you're asking. I promised you I was going into a rabbit hole. Now pull me out, brother. Pull me out. Just take my my pinky and pull me out. <laughs> the, the the education, uh, and I would rather much give myself to the joys and the promise of illiteracy. You're discovering that in India, or rediscovering that after hundreds of years under Brit the British Empire. Promised freedom, promised a utopian arrangement. Many Indians that I know are now going back to the farm, right? They're now, they're now learning from their grandmothers. People who started at Harvard and who went to the bank, uh, Morgan Stanley, are now sitting at the feet of their grandmothers and unlearning their education, whatever that means. I don't mean to pathologize global education. I mean to say it is doing certain things that reproduces the image of the familiar. And even those of us as well-intentioned as some of us in this, in this gathering, um, or some of us even listening, when we adduce or produce imaginaries of a future, bright and light, where we're able to move around freely, 
Sometimes it is the status quo speaking through us. It is the same global state nation order that is manipulating our senses of hope and reproducing itself. And this is what I have experienced as a child of the so-called global South, right? Where in the hopes of defeating the colonial order, we reproduced it. We chased away the British people. We lowered down the Union Jack and then we opt our own. We, we, we put up our own. And suddenly the game we thought we had won, we were part of its machinery. So we are already doing philosophy here, brother. There isn't a simple way to sidestep the messiness of our conversation to move into the obvious and then claim that everything outside of this obvious is just a dilly darling. We are doing this philosophy together. We are in the Atlantic messy middle together, brother. Yeah, I'll just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a wonderful rabbit hole, by the way. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thanks, by You're definitely a poet, man. <laughs> One of today's roomies and her thesis. Um, I, I, I don't see. The Brits never went out there to save the planet or anything. They would. That, no Brit went out there anyway. It was businesses went out there, the British East India Company, and, the, and it was companies going out there. It's got nothing to do with your average door in Birmingham or Gloucestershire or something. It, and it, this is another hoodwinking of, oh, that the, that the government is representing me, right? That the queen is representing the dude that lives in, in Manchester or something. They're, they're not. It has nothing to do with me. So the, the, somebody whipping down the Union Jack on some foreign shore has got nothing to do with Britain, nothing to do with the British person, nothing to do with trying to save the planet. It has to do with how many diamonds and raw materials can I extract out of here for myself and the queen, God bless her, God save her, blah, 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 and ship it back into my Swiss bank account. So I don't see colonies as, it's not a person or a race thing. That's just business. That's just a business thing, which the average person has never had anything to do with. It's just always been a few heavyweight multi-billionaires from the Caesars all the way up to the Jeff Bezos that play that game. Father, if oh. I may, if I may, brother, I'm so sorry. Uh -huh. I have to say this. Uh -huh. This is... So when I say the British, I'm not. It would be, it would be, a, it would be an, an unfortunate reduction to, to say that I'm speaking about the British individual, um, or or rather, this is probably a better way to frame this, or rather than I'm making attributions of guilt, right? I'm I'm making attributions of complexity and complicity. Oh, yes, the British person or the self is part of colonial order. Every time someone in the West or even in the so-called global South holds up a phone to use in its ordinary meanderings through the, the everyday, every time that happens, you're pulling on and tugging on legacies of denial, right? Just to eat the things that you eat, just to feed on the foods that you feed on is to invoke those horrible legacies of colonialism and loss and extraction. 
it's, it, there's no distinguishing the empire from those that the empire was created to serve. You walk on the paved stones. But I, what's the beautiful stone that was shipped from Brazil and taken to Portugal? What Preta, I forget what his name is. It's just beautiful stones. And if you've ever been to Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, and you notice the cobbled stone streets in Rio de Janeiro and in Sao Paulo, and then you go to Portugal, you see how the, the streets are framed in the same way. Then you notice how just standing on the surface is to be sponsored by colonial legacies. Everyone is complicit. That there's, there's no say, you, you can't just reduce it to business and say, oh, the, the, the trading companies were, who did the trading companies serve? The trading companies led to the wealth of the West. They brought in food. They brought in sugar cane. They brought in all of that. They built the West, not just the White House. So <laughs> this, is, this is to distinguish them and to tear apart the person from business is to, is to occlude the ways that we are all complicit in this. And that is not, again, this just to notice that this is not an attribution of guilt. African kings sold black bodies, right? We were part of empire building too. So this is not a, this is not my, my rant, identitarian rant. I'm saying we're complicit in excessive orders that exceed the way we act or think as individuals, that we are participating in realms that exceed the individual. We sold black bodies to white slavers in exchange for gunpowder and mirrors, shards of broken glass. We are part, we're caught up in this too. We sold our own people and our people, millions went to develop the West right, and Europe. So we are all part of this and there's no pure individual that could stand out of all these legacies of loss and now imagine and dream up a new world. We have to face the hauntings, the burial grounds, the bones, upon which we stand upon before we clear the road to a bright new future. So, Bio, Bio, how long is this going to take? Forever? How much time are we going to... It's funny, like, it's strange. Look at us. We're, we're, we're trying to get together to think of the future. And, and I think we're reasonably intelligent, uh, seven reasonably intelligent people. And even within this small little connection, we cannot look forward. We spent the past hour or so looking backwards. I'm saying, is it possible? Is it possible to um, just even as a thought experiment to start from scratch today? To, as a thought experiment to say, let's just imagine that there's no such thing as borders. Forget about, let's just imagine that there was no past. Just, just over a cup of coffee, right? How do we go ahead today with the global warmings, the suffering of refugees? Today, can we go ahead? And it's almost, here we are, we're trying to discuss that. And we can't even get past the first 10 minutes without falling back onto this past because it's so endemic on our hard drive. So, um, Tom, you were saying education. It's all about education. 
It's all about these brand new, beautiful, I've just had two grandkids born within the time of, uh, within a year. And I look at them and I think, these guys have just landed on the planet. Brand new, crystal clear hard drive, nothing. None of this stuff that we're talking about is on their hard drive yet. None of it. It's irrelevant to them. It's going to be nothing but background noise. If any of this was downloaded upon them right now, they are just full-blown, wide-open uh, little blobs of consciousness. All right? And so what are we going to download upon them so that when they grow up, they're in a war in in a um a world that's better than ours that people do care about themselves that they don't feel foreign from each other that they feel like they're all part of the same thing that's what i'm i'm kind of hoping that this conversation would be about and yet it's here we are talking about the past again why do we do that and i i mean Yes. Oh, please go ahead. Please go ahead, Tony. I was responding to your question. Oh, yeah, go go ahead, Maya. I, I, the question of why we do that is sponsored by the presumption that it ought not to be done. And here's where I, I'm also speaking about differences. Because there are people of the First Nations in the Americas, right, in, in North America, that would say to return to the past is intelligence. How do we how do we hold that? Right? How do we hold that? That that turning to the past is intelligence. Because your notion of the past is not linear time. It's facing monsters, it's facing the hauntings that are around us. And so I you know, I have to say, you know, you said something about your beautiful babies born. I hope I have the privilege of holding them one day, Claudia. Maybe when we meet eventually across these epidemiological borders. Um, that babies, they're born crystal clear, you know, and I hear the myth of tabula rasa there, a clean slate. So we come into the world with a clean slate, and then we're in, our hard drives are infected with the software of the messiness of the contemporary. But then how do we hold stories or reports about babies born as already politically entangled with a Hiroshima bomb blast. This might be something that uh, your audience might know already, Tom, that um, uh, up till the 70s or the 80s, when testing was still going on, babies were born with radiation poisoning, even if it's in very tiny amounts, from 1945. August 6th and 9th. Think about that, that when the explosion happened, it spurned and it's just spat out chemical agents into the atmosphere, into the waters, into our skins, and then we passed on those things. Think about the entanglement, the webs we're talking about here. And then it actually goes on to baby so that even generations to come are already politically, corporately entangled with Hiroshima. That already upsets the idea that we're born crystal clean. And, and that's what I'm trying to signal here. 
that maybe staying with the mess and this idea that we should march into the future and, and we're struggling here because we're not doing that work well, maybe the struggle is emancipatory. Maybe this not knowing, not figuring things out is decolonial. Maybe turning to the past as opposed to facing the future, which is what Apple, which is what Tesla, which is what these giant corporations and trade policies want me to do. Maybe facing the past fugitively and not a past that is a creature of a linear time scale, but a past that is an invitation to notice ecology, to notice ancestry. Maybe the celebration of the dead and not knowing what to do after that, maybe that's emancipatory. Maybe um, arriving at some future utopian arrangement is exactly what the city-state wants me to do. Maybe that's exactly what I should be doing if I want to continue my incarceration. But maybe my messiness, my I don't know what to do. I don't feel like going to work. Tom, Jessica, Sam, Tom, <laughs> you guys probably have heard of the uh, great resignation, right? The great resignation. You've heard about it. The pandemic-induced refusal to go to work. Right? That's not a manifesto. That's not a blueprint. And yet people are feeling, yeah, I don't want to go to work today. Maybe that's good. It doesn't, it's not articulate, it's not poetic, but maybe there's something about that that just invites us to live, to lie down. There's a line flat movement in China that is going right now. Does it have a blueprint for the future? Nope. Kids, millennials come together and they just said, you know what? Line flat is good. Why? I don't know. It's good. And people lie flat on the streets and do stuff, right? I'm, I'm not saying that we summarily disband any attempt to think about or anticipate the future. But I'm just saying that we ought to notice that we never anticipate in isolation. That many attempts to create and predict and control a future that is amenable to our dreams of utopian arrangements often collide with and conspire with the present and often repeat the present. And I know this because I am a child of this, the, the structural adjustment program. I'm a child of the International Monetary Fund. I'm a child of the World Bank because they marched into our localities and said, you guys are not free. We're going to give you computers and laptops. We're going to educate you out of your messiness. We're going to give you suits in the tropics. <laughs> We're going to give you times books, everything you want. We're going to give you loans, right? And we're still in that shit. We're still in that trouble. We don't know how to get out of that mess because we now think that the future is to look like New York, is to look like London. If only we can look like London, we'll be free, guys, right? We'll be free. And I'm saying that we now have to come back to ourselves and say, nah, this isn't working. This toxic imagination is getting us nowhere. We need to stay with the trouble. And it may not bring us to some arrival place where everything is fine, but maybe staying with the cracks is just how worlds are, paid, are built and made. And so I've interrupted you too much. That's right. If I can jump in here, if that's okay. And, and I, I haven't met either of you before, and it's just been a real pleasure to, to sit and listen to you um, today. Both of you speak so well, and it's nice to just close my eyes and just like picture what you're saying as well. But I think, so we've got a position, I think, um, where Claudia wants to look forward, wants to look to the future, you know, what can we do? And then 
I think I see bio saying, well, we can't ignore the past. And so what I'm really interested in is the present and right now, and particularly how do you both deal with the storm, you know, outside, you know, we live in a messy world, things are imperfect. And so I'm interested in, in how you navigate both that, that storm outside. And then from what Bio said last time he was on the storm within, you know, what can we do and what advice would you give to people listening about how to, to reconcile themselves to these difficult conversations that we're having now? Yeah, I would say emancipate yourself, emancipate your mind. And that's basically what we're talking about. Uh, nations, borders, frontiers, uh, people that um, control and rule our lives. Uh, that's a mental, those walls and borders are on the inside. So I, I would encourage a person, a young person such as yourself, to look at the facts of where you're living, not by the facts I don't, or rather go to NASA, go to the Hubble, look at the photos, don't go to the Daily Mail and to the BBC and look at their photos. That's going to be very small little snapshots of propaganda that you're being asked to um, inhale, absorb, and believe. Just, um, just go and see the size of the moment that you are an inseparable part of. I hope this isn't sounding too cosmic, but you, you can't... It, you're not going to be able to liberate other people. You can't move another person, even one iota, one speck to the left or to the right. But you can either incarcerate or liberate yourself. And um, I wish somebody had educated me to that fact. Right. And, and I think that's what's lacking in schools is to don't tell me what to think. Just tell me how to look upon around, how to look around me and see things um, directly, not through somebody else's lenses. So uh, you, you're Tom, right? Tom? Right. So, Tom, I would encourage you and all the other beautiful modern day uh, cutting edge Toms to think truly for yourself, not via through the House of Windsor or the Houses of Parliament or through the, the tribe or the nation. Think for yourself. And when you're looking out at this infinity of galaxies, this infinity of humanity, this infinity of insects and fish and, and like see it through your own eyes and then see, double check, are there actually walls and doors and borders and frontiers? Are they actually there? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's all I would say. And I, and I think, I do think that's very, very simple, very direct. It's not philosophical. It's just, there's nothing philosophical about looking up and looking at the galaxies and saying, wow, that's what I am. And looking at the rest of the planet, seeing the planet as a whole and saying, wow, that's home. That's not a philosophical thing. 
right? What's philosophical is I think I'm Italian. Oh, now we're now we're into philosophy, <laughs> right? And it's very recent. That's very recent stuff. You see, that only happened. I mean, Italy as a nation only came together. They didn't even have Italian as a language till Dante came along, and that was just like the day before yesterday. So, but it's rammed and forced down our throats, like you're Italian and you're this and that. My answer to your question is, see what you actually are yourself, and then act accordingly. Because there's seven and a half beautiful Toms just like you that want the exact same liberties and freedoms. So just act accordingly. Leave them alone. Let them be. They want to live in a refugee camp. Let them. If they don't, don't put a door on it. Let them move out. Don't label them Ukrainian or Serbian. Or Stop it. Just stop that. Be in... Be your own Tom, your own galactic Tom. That's all. And, and I don't think that's, uh, I want to just push back on this word utopian. Utopian is used as a, um, it's kind of like a negative um, put down in a way. I, I, I hope everybody here, I wish everybody was utopian. I think utopian is the normal uh, it's like being a giraffe or an elephant. They live in a utopian world because it's real, right? It's human beings that have lost their ability to be utopian. It's just like, no, I want to be a Brexit dude. I don't, you know, I want to be separate. That's, don't be a Brexiter. Don't don't Brexit yourself from anything. <laughs> don't Brexit yourself from the globe. Don't Brexit yourself from the galaxies. Think cosmic. Inhale that. That's your right. Anyway, that's my little rabbit hole. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And bio, any advice, please? Tom, remind me of your question again. What was it again? Tell me. I, I was asking about the storm within and the storm outside and how, well, how, how do you um, personally, I guess, cope with, with the, the complexities of life and the difficulties? And what advice would you give to, to listeners that also struggle with these concepts? Hmm. I just told this story um, to, I just had an interview just before this, and I told this story about an English gentleman named Jonathan Williams, and he's an atmospheric chemist uh, who studies gases, of course, high implication, um, gases in the atmosphere. And his uh, primary work at the Max Planck Institute was to try to find um, if human bodies contribute to greenhouse gases. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Question, like what if in exhaling carbon dioxide, we're actually contributing to the coagulation of those troubling gases in the atmosphere? His results were, no, we don't. Not significantly. It's obviously plumes and smoke plumes and emissions and spillages and the industrial world that is doing the, the heavy lifting here. We are 
minor contributors. But a new question came up, Tom, in the midst of that research inquiry. And it was, what if we are, um, what if I can detect joy in the atmosphere? What if I can track feelings in the air just as I would track other gases? Could it be that the emission of gases is correlated with certain emotional states of being? Isn't it an interesting question? If you could detect depression in the air, you could go into a place and lick your finger and just point it in the air and say, this place is really sad. You know, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> well, that was his question. And so he conducted an experiment that involved up to 10,000 10, people and hundreds of scenes of movies. And basically they spooled air through the theater um, and then we see on the other end the results of that contraction. Basically, what people were breathing out went to this machine that measured the chemicals, the volatile organic compounds. It's called VOCs. And what they found out is that they could actually measure to a T, you know, the feelings that were going on in the cinema. Like if you watch the Avengers, have you watched the Avengers? You have watched the Avengers. Um, the place where Captain America says, Avengers, assemble, right? And the theater cheers. That moment was chemically, dif chemically different from <laughs> the moment where everyone was scared because the protagonist in the Hunger Games was about to be killed, which is interesting. But what's more interesting and, and speculatively significant is if we think about that, then we are moving in feelings that we, we literally traverse the world in feelings, right? That, that feelings are not inside because the boundaries of the human are not a fait accompli. They're not final. It means that the internal, like you said, the internal storm and the outer storm. What if like a Mobius trip that is weaving its way, its way into each other, what if the public is also the private? What if we don't actually feel things as much as feelings use us? Just hold that thought for a moment as I complete my, my mic drop. <laughs> and what I want to say is this, that I feel we are stuck. We're stuck as a civilization, as a people, as people trying to address the messy legacies and issues that are bound up with the Anthropocene. I'm sure you know what the Anthropocene is by now, this geological time frame that is defined by human organisms trying to do everything, right? Um, we are caught up with climate chaos and suffering and war and doomsday clocks moving closer to midnight. There's a lot of trouble afoot. And every time we try to create a solution to it, it only tends to deepen the crisis. So we are stuck. I gave a commencement address at Pacific Graduate Institute last year. And as they celebrated their successes, I invited the young people and sometimes even older people who were completing their PhDs and MSCs to embrace failure. That success might be a disability in a time when success 
the idea of succeeding is bound up with troubling, troubling disclosures and troubling denials. What does it mean to embrace failure? It means those things that we tend to push aside, those things that um, we have been trained to think of as horrible, um, tending on the mad or the insane, are often possibly the out uh, the outliers, the places we're being invited to steal away from the plantation that reproduces the image of the contemporary, the familiar. And I think young people, children, are the, are the gift of the cosmos to break us if we give them a chance to, because our adultism, I call it adultism, adultism is deep. And so we want all our children to be in the family way. And schooling is a part of that. Education is a part of that. But I think children are a gift of a cosmos that knows that everything often works and shifts by failure. And what do I mean by that? A star exploding in the universe spreads its guts in the universe and becomes us. We're literally made of stardust. That means a star's failure is the beginning, the creative beginning of other kinds of worlds. Right? So I'm leaning into failure. And what my wife and I did, so to tell you that this is not mere philosophy or theory, this is place-making, home-making work, is that we have two kids, eight and four. They've never been to school. We took them, not as if they were black slaves that came into the world, we took them as ancestors returning. We took them as philosophers in their own right. I follow my daughter around the streets when she asks, asks a stupid question like, Dada, where does shit come from? Or where does shit go to? And we make that a research question and we explore it together because I know my PhD and my education is getting in the way of me understanding other things. And so we need you, Tom. We need your... We need your sense, your aesthetics, in order to break through the familiar. So fail generously, fail wisely, fail with community. And maybe we might learn from you guys. Well, thank you, Bio and Claudia and everyone in this call. Uh, that was a great mic drop, by the way. But I just want to, yeah, I feel like all of the thoughts we've been raising kind of reflect this beautiful wrestling with with complexity and it feels it feels yeah. strange uh there's actually a great chill out track called beautiful strange which maybe maybe is a good <laughs> outro track but it does feel beautiful and it feels strange you know these are the ideas of failure and it feels uh, sometimes as if you know the not only is the rug being pulled beneath our feet but we find out there's no floor but to kind of riff off bio's metaphor if we're, we're floating in, in a flawless world and then we find out we're made of stardust then maybe we can feel a bit more at home in this kind of cosmic universe of, of uncertainty. Um, and so I think we, we often uh, end with this, but I think as, as Tom often says, it, it is a call to adventure uh, in this kind of real complex, uncertain time. And all of these thoughts reflect aspects of, you know, our humanity's search for, for meaning uh, in a way. So I thank you so much. Uh, everyone on the call, you know, for for this uh, great episode. Thank you. I thank Claudio. I know someone else needs to speak. I thank Claudio. 
I hope we meet big brother <laughs> and that, and that we eat together. I would love for us to go out and eat together and continue our bantering and conversation. And I think somewhere between that, we make home together. Yes. And the chai and a good curry is on me bio. All right. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll have you all, you'll, we'll have you all in London for a cosmic cup of tea and uh, yeah, curry. <laughs> That would be fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody. It's a great honor and pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.